This is the America Builds Podcast, and I'm Will, a prior service U.S. Marine and venture capitalist, and I'm going on a journey to find those who engineer, build, manufacture, and move because they have the courage to get off the sidelines and execute. Dan, thanks so much for joining the show, man. I appreciate you being here. Good to see you, brothers. Good to see you. Good to see you. And I wish it was for better reasons. I feel like now is such a, an important time to host this podcast with you. Of course, we're having this call while you're in Israel and everything that Israel is going through right now. I think it's just so important to elevate and kind of put those voices out first. So I appreciate you being on the show. Absolutely. We're planning this for as much as we can. And some people are having guns and some people are holding uh, words as their weapons. And that's kind of what we're taking right now on ourselves. Yeah, let's dive right into this. I mean, you're a technical founder. You run a company called Cyabra. In full disclosure, I was an investor in Cyabra at my previous fund. So I'm already sold. I'm a big fan of Dan Bromby. I'm a big fan of Cyabra. But I think more than anything else, what I'm most keen to get to, and I want to get like right to it, is that in today's battlefield, people use social media as a weapon. Tell me a little bit about how people use this broadly and what you're doing to address that issue. And then I want to focus acutely on how Hamas is doing this today on the battlefield in Israel. Right. So, yeah, I think you've made a great introduction and I'm happy that we're here. So uh, the whole thing is the following. We act as kind of a watchdog. That's what we call it. So we're watchdog on social media and we help enterprises and some public sector organizations distinguish between the real, the bad and the fake. Obviously, couldn't be more relevant for the last few days, and we'll talk about it and dive deeper into it. But the long story short is, whether we deal with election interference, whether we deal with the ongoing social media terrorism that is happening worldwide, we have found ourselves in a pure war, in a pure conflict. And I can tell you that the scale of the shit that we have found online is unprecedented. It's actually not just the scale, it's the speed, it's the strength and the coordination at which this whole thing has been done. And that's what is very scary, especially when we as Sarah are sitting at the intersection, right? Because we gather the information and we process it. So we have to go through this whole thing. It's rough. But when we talk about the use of social media in war, I think most people think about misinformation right and using instagram or tiktok or facebook to push out an inaccurate opinion about what's going on in the battlefield for example russia's winning the fight or ukraine's winning the fight or hamas is winning the fight or israel's winning the fight why is that relevant and important why not just let these people talk why concern yourself about misinformation in social media yeah. Oh, we'll do my best yeah, to sure. keep that as short as I can, because there's going to be a lot of explanations. But hold on. So I think, you know, as a young parent, I got two baby dragons at home. They're like nine months old and like two and a half years old. All right. Baby fucking dragons, man. I love it. And so the baby dragons, I'm saying, you know, it's funny. I'm actually pretty lucky because I'm in a war zone as we speak. And I'm lucky to not have children that are six, nine or 15 years old because I would be scared shitless. The amount of information that is flowing, regardless of the disinformation, the fake news, the propaganda machine, nothing. It could be real information spread by real people at any given time, but it's just, it's so accessible. You just have to have a social media account and then you're there. You can have people taking pictures and videos. So it's right there. And the moderation is at its best somehow being done right now. And so I'm actually very lucky 
that my kids don't have their fingers and their thing and their eyeballs on this stuff because it's just it's horrifying and it's trading scars. So the first reason is why is it so important and why is it so bad throughout a war zone and a war as a whole is that social media is an undeniable battlefield. People don't realize that. And it's in the pocket of the child. You know what? It's in the pocket. It's in the pocket. And you and I have talked about this before in the past, and I'm going to reiterate it here for the podcast, but my own experience in Afghanistan, there's the rule of law when we're engaged in conflict and war. And when there is violations of that, Marines and soldiers and sailors are held accountable almost to a level in which people say, like, I don't understand what's going on. I thought we had these guys backs. Like, there's a lot of those conversations going on, but they're made an example of. And I think what's unique about the conflict that we're seeing right now between Israel and Gaza, or actually, let's say it's Israel and Hamas. I think that might be the correct way to put it, because I'm not sure that we have a problem with the geographic area of Gaza or of the Palestinian people. There's a fine political discussion to be had around this, but the actions of Hamas violate the rule of law and the laws of war in every way, shape, and form. And you're saying that children... Six, nine, fifteen have access to these grave, you know, violations of human rights. I think you've portrayed it perfectly. Like when you started, you said social media platforms can be weaponized in the wrong hands. Now, what's fascinating about the field that we work in and that we develop technologies in, and horrifying as well, is the fact that these words, there's no guns blazing and grenades. And fucking RPGs. It's not like that. You can have one malicious actor organizing the wrong thing at the wrong place to the right people. And then you have your 12 years old that are saying, you know what? It's terrible. I would like to share that. And then you find yourself within seconds just posting 600 times a day. And so now what I'm trying to say is that weaponized to the point where the weapons are the 500 million people that have a smartphone. So imagine a war where you have, forget about the sides here for a second, Israel and Hamas. Just imagine that you have a battlefield and you have 500 million bullets that can fly anywhere. And imagine that Hamas is the wind. Does that make sense? And Hamas is the sun or the moon. And Hamas is the whatever fucking you want element of the nature. Yeah, it does. I mean, you can change the outcome of the bullet. Yeah, that is exactly what I'm saying right now. In a sense, it's like micro targeting of vulnerable populations to wage a form of psychological warfare, which if you've been in a battlefield in the past, one of the most effective weapons out there is a sniper. And even though that sniper takes one shot at a time and only kills one person at a time, it's the fear. The fear fear. permeates the unit. You can't see the sniper. You only hear once the shot, right? It's just, it fizzles. It's a, right? And then someone drops next to you and then you freeze because you are afraid. It's the fear of being the next one, right? Actually, that's a great example. By the way, just so you know, it's a good segue into one of the elements of what's happening right now in the war zone in our battlefields, which is not the physical battlefield, but actually the online, the social media battlefield. It's the fact that for a long time, people talk to us about the fact that, oh my God, you know what? You know, yes, I've seen the 12 fake accounts or the 12,000 fake accounts. And we're like, guys, it's not a quantity play here. Quantity plays such a small part in this strategy. Actually, what plays a major part is the quality of it. It's the coordination. It's the meticulous precision at which you can do one thing. So 
what you said is perfect. In my playground, the social media and the online sphere, you don't need 10 million soldiers. You need that sniper that can entice the fear, the doubt, the confusion, the deception. This is exactly what you said. So social media, I'm thinking about its uses in war. We've talked about it almost being micro-targeting and acting as a sniper to children and to parents and inspiring fear and pain and hatred into the hearts of these folks. How else is it used? I mean, I assume it's used to control the political outcome or like the support of these entities. So what I'm trying to get at is like, I understand that Hamas is trying to maybe put some stuff in the pockets of a young Israeli kid. Got it. Absolutely. That's a great argument. Are they also putting stuff into the pockets of a kid in the U.S. or their parents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's not just uh, the local repercussion, obviously. You have the international repercussion on a media perspective, on a geopolitical perspective. I'll give you a really good example. Unfortunately, and we've seen it a few thousand times in the last four or five days of war, there's a few hundreds of instant messaging and social media groups and channels that have been impersonating, listen to this stuff, worried parents and worried relatives, right? And then they just come in masses, okay? Worried citizens, Israeli citizens are saying, oh my God, yes, I may have seen a picture. Oh my God, this is my daughter. This is my son. This is my nephew. And what do they do? What do you do when you're worried? You share. You share. You go right in and you say, wow, can you help me? The other side says, absolutely. This is why we created that Telegram thing, that WhatsApp stuff. And what's the next thing you know? They extract terribly sensitive information from the worried parents. So you got additional pictures, videos, phone numbers, email addresses, home addresses, right? It's terrible because these people are taking advantage of the loss and the sorrow and they are impersonating volunteers in a war zone for the sake of extracting sensitive information and just put it back into other people's mouth and feeding their whole intel. So. This is one example that we've seen, which and we've been fighting this, and we've been talking about this and exposing it. it. It's just, how bad can you be? How evil? Yeah. How do you approach this from a technological perspective? Do, do you have to hire an analyst to watch it and to understand it and to search these people and to call them and to find out who's who in the zoo and if this is real or... How do you approach this in a way that is scalable, where you can say, okay, I've got X number of Hamas folks that are targeting X number of parents or young children. How do you do this using tech in a way that allows you to move quickly? It's a valid question, actually. So especially in times of war, you really don't have time because at the speed that we're going right now, every single hour, we're getting like casualties and casualties and bodies everywhere, right? So we got to move fast. So from our perspective, the tech works in the following way. We have the ability to gather publicly available information at scale from those so-called social media platforms and just as long as it's publicly available, nothing else. So you don't have the luxury of hiring an analyst. You give the example of an analyst or a researcher, but as a matter of fact, one researcher would make absolutely no sense. I'll tell you why. Just imagine that in a few days, we have found a few dozens of thousands of fake accounts on the leading social platforms that have generated 500 million views for their stuff. Forget if it's real or fake, right? Going into 40 or 50,000 fake accounts is impossible as a human being, right? Because you're trying to make an assessment here that makes sense. And going 
through a few millions of pieces of content, visual or not, it's just impossible. So you have no choice. So what we do is we have built our own machine learning algorithms. What is distinguishing between real and bad fake? We look at the way that behavioral patterns can assess whether you are a bot, a spam account, a sock puppet, an avatar, or a real person. And as a matter of fact, for us to be precise and as accurate as it can be, by the way, opening parenthesis here for people that expect AI to be 100%. There's no fucking 100%. It doesn't exist. Don't trust people that say 100%, all right? But to be as high as you can, actually, what you do is you got to train your models on distinguishing and actually train your models on what is real, and you need to teach your models on what is fake, right? So this is what we did for the last five years of existence. We taught our models of why is Will Allen a real account? What does he do when he wakes up in the morning? At what frequency? Who is he talking to? What's the first circle? What's the second circle? And is it the same way that another normal human being would behave or not? What type of content? What were the first things? Like all these things. And we're talking about hundreds of machine learning parameters. But we have to train the model of this is how fake looks like. This is how real looks like. And then we do the 80-20 machine learning, which is, you know, you teach for 20, you expose the machine learning for 80%. And then it's an endless process of machine learning. That's it. It's a continuous process. Let me ask you some dumb questions. Okay, we're going to ask some Marine Corps questions here, okay? Why don't you just turn off the electricity? Why don't we just turn off the electricity so every computer, cell phone dies in battery and then they can't do it? Catch all the misinformation and source through it. I mean, what you're trying to do, why don't you just make all their phones die? Oh, you mean Hamas-wise? No, not, not cyber-wise. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, it's a valid question. So let me ask you this question in return and tell me what you think, right? If Israel and the surrounding region, supposedly if we have some influence and some power over the electricity, the water, the food supply, you're correct. Yeah, I think it would shut down a lot of the operations. But hold on, what about the rest? I mean, is the whole war being coordinated or orchestrated only within the Gaza Strip? Or do you have like... 5 million folks in the U.S. that are innocent U.S. civilians that are saying, oh my God, you know what? We should delegitimize Israel's reason to defend themselves because fuck it, we should. Oh, it's so interesting to think about that because when we think about non-state actors, their influence obviously permeates from outside the state. And then on social media, that's it. Exactly that, right? So, and your question is so spot on because like, think about it for a second. You're coming from a crazy military background you have fought for your country you've gone through shit that is inexplicable okay and i presume i've done the same thing really more than anything and so what i'm saying is you're thinking as like a physical battlefield warrior right it's like one against one and if someone takes the bullet then you can presume that the other guy survived in a way right here it's not right. one against one here the ripple effect and the snowball effect gets amplified within minutes. So remember when I said you have 500 million little bullets and it's everyone who's using smartphones for the sake of consuming, spreading, talking, commenting. These are the bullets. And sure, I mean, you know what would be efficient? Yeah, you could shut down TikTok or you could shut down Facebook or whatever it is. But I mean, when was the last time social media platforms were shut down? I do not remember. And by the way, just so you know, I don't actually think that war is a strong enough of a reason to have extreme moderation and remediation techniques employed as we speak right now to make sure that evil doesn't 
do shit that is supposed to happen. But is that a reason to shut down the social platform? Think about it. Yeah, I mean, well, listen, like, this is not a technology I, policy I know, on podcast, but, like, these are interesting questions, and I hope that leaders at big tech and in the government, like, think about these issues. Yeah, of course, like, that's super interesting. It's like, so there's this phrase which is used, and it's death from beyond the grave, and that means, let's say you've got a grenade, and you toss the grenade, and then you get shot, and you're dead, but the grenade goes off after the fact, and you kill a guy. So, like, you know, you're dead, but, like, you just killed somebody with your grenade. But it already happened. That's called death from beyond the grave, right? And so, in a sense, like, social media serves as the perfect form of that. Because you can create content, and you can deliver it out in the world, and it will proliferate itself organically, and then you could be killed in a bombing or, you know, whatever it might be. But your content is still out there. Which, in that way, just to give the parallel explanation, in that way, it wouldn't be a grenade. But like, okay, sure, you shout something and it's generative AI content. Or it's just like a recycled, reused content from three years ago. Or from the war in Afghanistan, for all I care, right? And then you're like, 45 minutes later, the social platform has done something about it, right? But you're saying, 45 minutes I could show you right now the example of what Hamas has done. They have impersonated the largest YouTubers. I won't give the name, but think about a mister and think about an animal. If I'm making myself over here. So that's one example of one guy with no followers, no activity up until Saturday. And then they go from like nothing to pressing the button. And you have six, 700 post tweets a day, a day, bro. Their videos, they reach. Are you ready? One video out of the 600 tweets, one video as an impersonated celebrity on YouTube, it can reach up to like one, 250,000 views. That is one piece of content from one fake YouTuber. One. It is shocking. And I know the YouTuber that we're talking between the lines here about, and um, it begs a question in the United States, and you've been here a bunch. uh, (laughs) Well, in the States, we always talk about school shootings. Like school shootings are a big thing in the States. They're devastating. They destroy our communities. Very innocent young children are hurt. But it is very binary in the sense that there's like a gun and then there are students and we're trying to stop the gun from entering the school. And now we talk about doing school shooter drills. Like there's a shooter in the school. What do you do? And back in the day, it used to be, you know, nuclear training for an atom bomb or nuclear bomb and whatever, depending on what part of the country. No, it's what we do for the mass shootings in school, if it happens. Yeah. And so I'm curious to know if the future of the world will be training kids how to identify weaponized social media. So effects on them and their understanding of the world that's in their pocket. So while they're worried about a student, a kid coming in with a trench coat and a gun, really they're under assault every day by a named terrorist organization like Al Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, and they've got it in their pocket. I mean, they're walking around essentially with a weapon in their pocket. I'll tell you what, from my perspective, like you can't be, and again, I'm playing this field for the last few years. My co-founders have been in this field for like 15. So I'll tell you what I'm thinking. When I'm looking at this, I'm saying you cannot deny the good things that social media has brought to the world, whether it's the connectivity, it's the entertainment, it's breaking the barriers of having like e-gaming and just really making a lot of things that were very siloed, very niched. 
and making them broader and accessible for a lot of people. So the folks that are saying like, you should shut down the fucking social platforms. I'm like, okay, maybe, but you can't be too blinded by the fact that it brings also good stuff, like every good things in life. You know, if you eat too much donuts, sure, you'll die of diabetes, I guess. If you eat like one donut every three days, you'll have nothing. You'll just be happier, I guess, you know, which is not bad. I don't know. And so what I'm saying is you're just going to find the right balance. Educating people and just be like, when you're on social media, you know, you have children of your own and you see how teenagers are. Okay. So let's think about you as a teenager, me as a teenager. What do you do if I tell you, hey, well, do not watch the prohibited videos, son, because we love you. You will watch them. Oh, I'd watch them. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's not just like what's happening in the social platform. It's the perfect target age at which you are that disgusting, hardcore teenager that is denying life, that is denying parenthood. And we were like that. I was like that. And now I guess for good people, and that's okay. We all go through that period, and that's fine. So I'm saying it's not about just the platform. It's about also who are the targets. The targets are hard to educate folks. Like, think about it for a second. Well, it seems as though maybe what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that social media amplifies human nature. And... You know, if you're growing up a teenager, it's going to be amplified on social media and it's going to be reflected on social media and the crazy shit you would post or share or whatever. And, you know, when I was a kid, my dad would say, like, don't speed in the car. And of course I would speed. And he would say, you know, don't drive where I grew up. Lakes would freeze and we would drive cars and trucks onto lakes and drive them around the lakes when they're frozen. Yeah. And there's dangerous because if it breaks and you go in, you're dead. And they'd say, don't do that. Of course, they're like, don't make a bomb. And I'm like, I'm making a bomb. Sorry. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, let's just call me a teacher. Don't go to the army for 14 years and then you go to the army for 14 years. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And if it's amplified on social media, I mean, it's just a reflection of human nature is what I'm getting at. And so if that's true, I wonder if that means that the nature of war is reflected on social media. Like, maybe this is just so predictable. You know, I mean, it's like, of course, it's going to be weaponized because we have, you know, like we built hammers and then we created sledgehammers and then we created breaching tools. And then now we have something called Thor's hammer and it becomes a weapon used for war. Like we weaponize everything I got to say, look, social media platforms wouldn't exist if their algorithms didn't work very well on virality. Reality, provocative content, sexiness, whatever it is that works well for people. But if I had to put it in one word, it would be exciting. I mean, excitement. And so as bad as it sounds, talking from Israel right now, where I had to host my family from the Gaza Strip, because there were buddies on the fucking thing. And I had to organize my house with like beds and stuff and they're fine. But like I told you, you know, you cry the nights. But the whole thing is, and I'm saying this from the war right, zone right, right now. Right. I'm telling you, this is exciting. Maybe not for me. Most probably not for you. But a lot of people find this as an opportunity to create a new type of excitement, a new type of, it triggers dopamine. Yeah. It triggers something in your brain that makes you curious, that makes you intrigued. Why do you think people are asking about that? Why do you think the media is covering the bodies and the bloodshed and the bullets in the children's rooms? Well, of course, because you want to portray the reality that's happening in Israel with the Hamas and everyone else. But also because they know that it brings eyeballs. 
Yeah, and there's a major general who's on television who says, you know, I'm reminded of the time in which Eisenhower arrived at Dachau and said, bring the media. Yeah. The world has to see this. Yeah. And it's such an interesting thing. Are you suggesting that maybe the world sees it because they're excited and it's firing endorphins and it has created a form of, for lack of a better phrase, and I'm happy to dive into why I'm using this word, but a form of pornography versus a form of reality. Pornography is not reality, by the way, right? Like we know this. So it's like, yeah. No, no, I get what you're saying. Yeah, like the the ultimate excitement almost, right? So um, look, I think, I genuinely think that the world has an overwhelming reaction and sympathy to what's happening to Israel. I do. I genuinely do. I've seen what President Biden has said. I've seen what the Secretary of Defense has, Secretary of State, everyone. I've talked to former elected official, myself. I've talked to current elected official in Israel and outside of Israel as well. Okay? The support is unanimous. So I'm not saying everyone is bullshitting me and they're just saying that because they want their pornography triggering their brain. No. But if we're going back to how social media is built and how we are built as human beings, if I don't know. I'm just trying to find something boring for a second. But like, if I told you that every time you read a certain book where you have a dragon, then kids will die. And you're like, this is not that graphic. You can't make videos of it. I don't think the eyeballs for social media would be huge. So does that make sense? I know these are two extreme examples, but between the dead bodies in a bunker and the mutilated bodies of injured people and kidnapped people, and if you read the red book with the dragon, your kid will be scarred for life. And you're like, we don't give a shit. I mean, I need excitement. I need my brain to get excited. I need to move from right to left, pink, blue, green. I got to see that. This is what we've been built on right now. I'm sure that there are psychologists who have done research about this. The interesting thing is that like understanding or admitting you have a problem is the first step in, you know, solving the problem. And, you know, it seems like we're all under attack in a lot of ways by social media because it amplifies human nature. And then these really graphic things that are firing endorphins in the same way in which pornography are coming through and permeating our pockets and it gets out of control. Let me ask you this, though. Sorry to interrupt you for a second, but let, let me ask you that one thing. Do you have those like three friends that they don't have a social media account? Uh, I do. You do. And me too, by the way. I'm not one of them, but I do have them. And I'm like, I work in the social media debunking shit field. That's my job. Okay. I still have social media. And I look at my lack of social media account friends. I'm like, why? Why don't you have social media? And they're like, well, dude, because it's worrying, I don't need that to be happy. And I can call my people and I can text my people and I can meet with my people face to face. And that's great. But you still look at them weirdly. So what does that say about us as a democracy? Well, it actually says that social media has invaded our private space to the point where the status quo is having and not not having. That's what it means. Well, I'm one of these people that doesn't have social media. So you can call me a weirdo all day long, all right? I have a, yeah. But you're a smart, safer weirdo. Well, here's why, actually. Maybe this is relevant and interesting. I have a LinkedIn because LinkedIn helps me professionally. I used Facebook 
And I got rid of it in like 2012 because the opinions I was seeing was changing my perception of my friends and family. And I was like, you know what? I just like you as my uncle from the fuck out. I don't need to hear that you're a bigot. And I didn't want to see the reality. And I didn't think it's reality. Like when I talk to these people, I don't think that they're bigots. I think that when they're behind a screen, the worst parts of them come out because there's no repercussions. Yeah, it's a safe space. I don't have to face you. I don't have to with you to tell you my opinion. It is a safer and an easier and accessible space right. to say what you want. I don't have to feel myself. I don't have to take a picture of myself. I don't have to see you and have the embarrassment of telling shit to your face. And then right. you show me the disappointment. There's no disappointment. You don't feel what you are potentially creating for better or for worse because you're typing. And then it is a real story. This is a true story. When I was in Afghanistan fighting a war, every time I got the internet, I would read the Huffington Post, which is like a far left newspaper and they cover celebrities and all this other bullshit. And that was just my politics. And that's what I like to read. And then I realized that they were reporting on the war in Afghanistan about things that I was a witness to. And I'm like, oh man, they got it so wrong. They got it so wrong. And then I was like, fuck, if they're getting this wrong, what else am I consuming that they're getting wrong? And so this led me to believe that like my Twitter use was super skewed because I was only getting news from like certain people or certain things that proliferated one opinion. And I saw that firsthand between Huffington Post and Afghanistan. So I wish I could say I've never been back to Huffington Post. I will look at it from time to time. But now what I do... I go to Huffington Post and I go to CNN and I go to Fox News every day and I read the titles and I take note of how different they are. This is such an interesting conversation. I'll tell you what that means to me. And I'm trying to think as an entrepreneur here playing in the field, like what you're telling me to me is that there's a problem that hasn't been solved. Then it's when you read, see, watch, listen to anything, any type of content online, there is no objectivity. There is only subjectivity. Yeah, right. I want to share one with you, actually. Today is a bad example because Israel's all over the news. Okay, so today's a bad example because they're generally sharing the similar topics. But here's a great one, man. And I'll do this in six months from now when, when maybe these news organizations are back to their original bullshit. When CNN posts something about Donald Trump being indicted, Fox News will have a picture of Hillary Clinton. And it's just a picture of her. And maybe she's saying something or she has commented on something. But it's like when something bad has happened to Donald Trump, instead of reporting that, Fox News throws out a piece of red meat about Hillary Clinton. And it's just crazy to see that like when one thing gets hyped up about something, the other side gets hyped up about their thing. And the reality is maybe like, hey, an ex-president was arrested today, and this is his mugshot. Yeah. Oh, that's not on Fox News. Like, what's on Fox News is this shit about whatever. And so, and it happens like that all the time. The headlines are never aligned, ever. They're never aligned. And I, I don't know if the world is ready to receive slash wants only one opinion, and it's an objective one. Like, how can you truly create objectivity? You probably need to take out of your system bias, feelings, and predefined mindsets and thoughts. So to me, that sounds like a robot, actually. Well, you know, my opinion is my personal opinion. I'd love to hear what yours is around this, too. My personal opinion is that the U.S. government is actually responsible for this. 
And what I mean by that is we were engaged in conflicts like Vietnam and the government, which was a trusted source, trusted news anchors like Walter Cronkite, okay, who are repeating government sources, believing that the government is putting information out that is in the best interest of the public. When in reality, that wasn't the case. Like we as an American public were being lied about Vietnam and about successes there and why we were there. And that has continued to this day. And I'm not talking about conspiracy theories around 9-11. I'm not talking about conspiracy theories around UFOs or fucking the moon landing. That all happened. I'm talking about government officials lying about how things are going. I think it happened in Iraq around weapons of mass destruction. I think it's happened in Afghanistan around our successes on the ground and people are angry about it. And as a result, there doesn't seem to be a baseline of truth. And for a long time, it was the U.S. government can't do anything bad in the wake of World War II. We are the beacon of freedom and liberty. But then those trusted news anchors were duped, essentially, and they got kids killed. They got Mr. and Mrs. Johnson in Minnesota. They got their son killed in Vietnam. What's the fine line from your perspective between a white lie, because the president or the secretary of defense, his whole her agenda was to protect the people of the United States of America, saying, I am okay lying to them for the sake of creating stability in my country, because if I do tell them the truth, they will lose faith. They will leave the country. They will hate it. And then there's the other aisle, which is maybe... People tell you things because they have a personal agenda. I mean, remember, the president is not a robot or the secretary of state is not a robot. It is a person. Feelings with needs, with wills. And maybe that person says, I want to be reelected. And then his advisor says, you know, a thing yeah. that a catastrophe That's what it where is. you come as a Batman would make your polls go fucking high. And then it's like, hmm, maybe we can try. So I'm not saying it happened. I'm just saying, do you understand like how thin this line is between like a white light to protect and a white light to promote my interests? Very thin. Yeah, I want to hear your response too, because you live in a similar but very different democracy with different politics. And especially now, the war aside, the politics of Israel are just so divided, similar to the United States in a lot of ways. But my reaction to you is, People are treated like they're idiots. Voters are treated like they're idiots. Like if you tell them bad news, they'll want to leave the country. And I think that after enough time of lying to people, they will want to leave the country. And so I think it's a cop out for a politician to say, well, if I give them bad news, they'll want to leave. I think what's happening is if you give them bad news, they won't want to be reelected. And as a result, this beautiful experiment of democracy is completely hinged upon the ego of a few. Yeah, like, are you insinuating that, okay, now I have to deflect every bad news to my predecessors or to some other person that I'm drowning? Right, that's what they do. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm like, it wasn't me. Could you imagine an American president saying, this was a mistake? I ordered the pullout of Afghanistan and it failed and I own that mistake. But here's the game plan moving forward. Dude, if somebody said that and if they were the first ones to say that, I bet you their popularity would skyrocket. I guarantee it, dude. Because we just assume we're getting lied to. The truth serum now has been pushed to the private sector, where social media is to be trusted more than the government in a lot of ways. Yeah, but you might also shatter like an entire generation trust system. 
like the 40, the 50s and above would be like, I like this guy. But what does that mean about me for the last 20 years? It's like looking up to your dad, like he's a hero. Yeah, but he wasn't there. And then realizing one day that he's a normal guy. It's called becoming a man yourself. It's called becoming an adult. And I think the American electorate is treated like adults. It will react differently than if we constantly treat them like children. And so that's my take. And by the way, that doesn't mean that white lies. I get it. You want to protect classified information, an alias of somebody. You want to inspire calm and stability. There's a time and place for that. And withholding information is maybe a little bit better than giving bad information. But not at every cost. Not at every cost. I understand. But I don't think that we're misaligned here. And by the way, this is an interesting <laughs> conversation that I'm going to get skewered for when I run for Congress, I'm sure. I don't know. Maybe you want me to whisper stuff in your ears too, right? But I'm never going to be the right person <laughs> for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only if it's ASMR, then you can whisper. Listen, Dan, this has been super interesting. I just want to thank you so much for coming on and having what I think is both a relevant and tactical conversation, but also probably the most interesting intellectual conversation that I've had on this podcast. And uh, no doubt because you're an interesting guy and uh, you're in tough times. And so um, thank you so much for being here and thanks for taking the time. Absolutely.